You're listening to TIP. If you're straight out of school, we say, hey, assume no dollars your first year. Second year, things start to click and you start to catch your friends in their salary. Third year, you're at their salary and a little bit or more. And then fourth year, they're wondering like what they did wrong and what you did right. And then kind of the sky's the limit. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down and talk with Matt Lasky about his journey in the commercial real estate industry. We did a deep dive into what the early years of being in the commercial brokerage business is like, how much a new broker can expect to make over the course of a career, what it takes to succeed in the business, why Matt focuses on medical office buildings, and other asset classes he thinks have great potential. Matt brings over a decade of experience in commercial real estate investing, leasing, finance, and portfolio and asset management to his role as managing partner at Equity Velocity Funds. His experience includes over $1 billion in transaction volume in 42 states as a principal or advisor in healthcare and retail. This was a really fun conversation for me as both Matt and I live in the same city and went to the same university. If you've ever wanted to know more about what the commercial real estate industry is like and how to succeed in it, you're definitely going to want to check out this episode. And so without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Matt Lasky. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a gentleman I'm really excited to have on, Matt Lasky. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Happy to be here. As we talked a little bit before the show started, you are in sunny Arizona and we both live in Columbus, but uh, tell us you're in Scottsdale? Yep. Uh, chasing the sun. Nice. And getting to golf today and having a good time. Yeah, we are uh, no shortage of golf and I can't do that where we're at getting pictures of snow. So it's nice to be out here. Yeah, as I mentioned, we're getting snow now. I'm a little jealous, I got to say. I love Arizona. But I want to kind of start off chronologically and I want to thank you first for your time joining us today. I wanted to hear a little bit about younger Matt. And I know you grew up in Chicago and I believe your mom had a condo that she rented out, which gave you your first taste of, let's say, passive income of real estate. And I also read that in your professional life, I don't think you've ever had a salary. And I wanted to hear just what childhood influences, could be your mom, could be other people, affected your decision to get involved in commercial real estate and become a real estate entrepreneur. The short story is my mom owned a condo in downtown Chicago, which was the first place she ever bought and she never sold it. So when I was born as a kid, the family lived there a little bit and then kind of like everybody else moved out to the suburbs for school. But she kept the condo and kept getting rent checks. And I thought it was the coolest thing, maybe as a child. So competitive athlete, grew up always trying to work hard, but also smarter, not harder. So you can imagine just having a check show up every month seemed great. And you mentioned passive. And I was like, oh, this is this is a phenomenal way to make a living. And uh, knowing what I know now, it's very not passive and it's a highly active industry. But that was kind of the, the first appeal and I think we'll get into it, but a little bit as a finance major, there was something about the tangibility to real estate, you know, being able to drive by it, touch it, feel it, that always kind of appealed to me rather than like a stock where you own a business, but you don't have influence and you don't necessarily get to be active and touch it and see it every day. Does your mom still own that condo and has she continued to invest in real estate? 
Yeah. So that was really the family's only real estate investment. My mom, unfortunately, passed away a handful of years ago, but it is uh, the condo is still in the family. We do still own it. But if we're having this interview a couple months later, there's an offer to actually purchase the whole building and convert it to apartments and rehab the whole thing. So we may be selling after, call it, I don't know, 37 or eight years. As we talked earlier, we've got a lot in common. We both studied finance at Miami of Ohio, both live in Columbus. When I was at Miami, there was really a big push for finance majors to work at investment banks or maybe go like the corporate finance route, like working for Procter & Gamble. You ended up working at Marcus and Millichap in Chicago as a, as a broker. How did you decide to end up working there? And tell us about what that first year in the brokerage business was like for you. Graduated at a time, basically during the tail end of the GFC. So real estate was kind of flipped on its head. Miami hadn't changed. I uh, worked pretty hard there to have good grades, graduated with honors. And the fact I wasn't going into investment banking or consulting was maybe a point of contention with the school at the time. Realize, I guess, work ethic has always been something that my parents instilled in me. And so I figure try to find something I love and work hard, which means call it 80 to 100 hours a week out of school. And I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'd rather bet on myself and the upside there and try to capture some of that. And was fortunate to be in a position where could kind of live at home, which isn't glamorous, but it keeps costs low. So there, you know, as a broker where you're not making any money, that it's a lot less scary to do it coming out of school if you can, than call it when you have a wife and kids and a family to support. Figured there was no better time than now. So jumped in year one, a lot of databasing and cold calling. I had an interesting situation where, you know, a lot of kids in Miami would graduate and then go travel or take some time off. I actually did my onboarding Marcus training my second semester of senior year. And then day one, I graduated on a, you know, a Friday and started in the office on a Monday and like through their training program, knew it was what I wanted to do, hit the ground running and hitting the ground means call it 50 to 100 cold calls a day. Monday through Friday and a lot of Saturdays and then, you know, databasing and trying to build that, call it potential prospect pipeline in non-golden hours. So like golden hours in real estate are, hey, when do you think you can get a hold of people? And that as an agent, you're segregating that by like time zone and type of group, right? Like, so your professionals that are doing this all day, the institutions, you're probably calling them during the day. If it's a private owner, you know, on the West Coast, then you need to learn that you can't call them at 8 a.m. Central Time because they're not awake. And I learned that the hard way multiple times. You would start to build kind of lists of people to call at certain times. And then it's just call it a traditional sales process from there. Did you have a finance professor at Miami that encouraged you to get into real estate or how did that develop? That's a little bit of an interesting story. So I always, I don't know, had this desire to like provide and make money and still trying to figure out where that came from because I was raised well and we didn't go like needing things, but just always had this drive to be a little entrepreneurial. And my dad owned a couple businesses. So maybe just growing up in the house of an entrepreneur and he did both that and corporate life. So kind of got to see the ebbs and flows of that. But when I was in school, I looked at the Forbes list and of richest people and I was looking and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of like tycoons of industry. I don't think we're going to have like another call it industrial revolution, at least not in my time. There are a lot of tech people, not that great at that. And then there were real estate people. So I'm like, all right, we'll we'll gravitate toward that. And by the way, a lot of those people own real estate too. 
It was just something that was tangentially close to finance, right? Because there is like real estate finance and financial skills have played a large role in, I think, some of the success I've had in commercial real estate. But it's kind of this kind of maybe dark corner of finance that's a little bit different than traditional finance. I had a similar experience. I used to love looking at those Forbes lists and just reading about each individual. And you're right. I mean, there's so many that they made their fortune in real estate and it's probably a good decision you made. So I wanted to hear more about any advice you had for just surviving that first year in business. I think for so many people getting started in commercial real estate, that first year is brutal. Talk to us about advice you have on surviving that first year. And then also like, how can a younger person add value to senior partners? I think it starts even before you begin your first year. It's a little bit like there's a common adage in real estate. You hire the attorney, not the firm. I would say you got to work with the mentor, the person, not the firm. It really starts with, hey, who is going to take me under their wing and help me? And that might not be financially, but really just giving their time to help teach you the business. I mean, there's a It's a high attrition business for brokerage at the start. And a lot of the people who are great at it realize that the one factor they have is time, right? And so time is money. And that's how like all top brokers are thinking. And it doesn't mean they won't help young guys out, but they're careful with their time. So differentiating yourself, but also making sure that you're set up to succeed because there's great training. And some of that'll be probably a hybrid corporate, but also that you're paired with somebody who's going to really help show you the ropes. And that can be There's big shops that are great at that and there's small shops that are great at that. But just because you're at a big brand name, if you're on a bad team or the senior people in the office aren't going to give you the time, then go with a small shop. Starting there, no, it's really making their life easier. So depending on the side of the business you get into, you know, there's going to be things that aren't the optimal use of their time, right? So if you're on a really prolific landlord rep team, which means you're leasing out, call it office, retail, industrial, whatever. It's probably not the best use of the senior people's time to go do showings. It might be for the right client and you have to learn how to do it, but you can start to pick up experience and scraps and take, call it work off their plate for them to go do the highest and best use of their time, which is probably to procure bigger deals and more business and then still fulfill the current business they have. In your experience at Marcus and Millichap, did you have a great mentor that first year that took you under his wing and showed you the ropes? Yeah, so I got to choose and it was um, maybe a little uncommon for the industry was a her and she had been a top producer and then slowed down a little bit for kind of work-life balance and family style. But her and I really clicked and it was clear that even though she wasn't the top retail agent at the time, there's another high producing team. She seemed more invested in like teaching the business and giving back and paying it forward. So kind of gravitated toward her and immensely valuable. And hey, here's how you conduct meetings or like, you know, the Marcus way is pound the phones and get meetings. And I still think that that's been an invaluable skill and helped me immensely. But she's also like, hey, there's other ways to like get in touch with people. And it's like called email and mail and that there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, it's so invaluable to have someone like that who's willing to take the time to spend with you. And you said you were you were making what, 50 to 100 cold calls a day. Is that right? Yeah. On average. And there are a couple awards like that Marcus and some other organizations have like for pay setter, rookie of the year, et cetera, that at the time it was like you had to average 250 calls a week for I don't know, however many months. So I did that, call it every week and and then some. And, you know, was, at that point, it's like more is more. Right. So, you know, if you make an extra 100 calls, that's really going to benefit. Call it Matt Lasky. 
So there's a lot of incentive there. Also, the office would, uh, by name, post the number of cold calls every week everyone made. And if you were a new guy there and you didn't have a lot of calls, that was very frowned upon in a public way. Moses Kagan, who I know you're friends with on real estate Twitter, had a post recently where he suggested somebody should do like 50 to 100 interviews with commercial real estate people and interview them just like we're doing, ask them about how they got into the business, what drew them to commercial real estate, what made them successful, and then also asking about their income. So I kind of wanted to go through that a little bit. This may be the first, who knows, we'll maybe put out a book here. You'll be the start of it. I wanted to ask, how much can a beginning broker expect to make in their first year in business? We tell everyone, expect to make no money the first year. And there's a bifurcation I draw between if you're going into like investment sales versus some sort of leasing or a hybrid of both. So investment sales has you know, one of the biggest upside potentials just based on deal size, but it's also the longest lead time of a sale. Cause let's just say, you know, you get a listing, takes a month to prepare it. Then you market it for two to four weeks. If you're good, then it's still a few months to close. And that's starting from contact and like the person saying, Hey, I want a list. So that's a longer like lead cycle. Leasing brokers kind of going back to what I talked about earlier. If you're on a team, you probably can get cut in with some small deals earlier, but there's a handful of agents. You know, I'd say that have turned the corner and I was senior in this industry. And yeah, this was 10 to 20 years ago, but we all made between call it like zero and $30,000 our first year. And from there, it's kind of like, if you're straight out of school, we say, hey, assume no dollars your first year. Second year, things start to click and you start to catch your friends in their salary. Third year, you're at their salary and a little bit or more. And then fourth year, they're wondering like what they did wrong and what you did right. And then kind of the sky's the limit. And people have done it quicker. Some of that depends on like where you're at in the market cycle and what you're doing. You know, I've seen people have that like meteoric success by middle or early of year two. But then there's also been people who have kind of plateaued and done just all right for call it handfuls of years. So for a young person who wanted to be Matt in five to 10 years, what are some steps that they could be taking or should take some daily habits or things that you do that have been the key to your success? I think a lot of that is just be prepared to work hard. And now there's an ability to work smarter and harder. But when I first got in the business, I didn't know what smarter was because I had to learn. The harder you work earlier on, you get to speed up that learning cycle. Partner with great team or partners. And I would also say like, do it genuinely because you're interested and love it or think you may love it. I truly do love the industry and like the money can be great, but it'd be a big difference of kind of constant rejection if you didn't actually like what you do and you were just chasing dollars, actually trying to have a passion for it and the money will follow because you need to do the right thing. And we've taken haircuts on a number of things because it was the right thing to do for a client or deal. And it's easy to do now, but it wasn't early on. And you have to realize that like real estate's the long game. It's not a get rich quick scheme, right? So the fruits of your labor really come from years five, 10 and beyond. And because relationships and knowledge compound, going into it with the expectation of it can be a very like rewarding, fulfilling career, but it's going to take a while. And the first few years are going to be a wild grind. And then some of it is kind of what you want out of the kind of out of the industry. So I have a great team and a great business partner. But 10 years ago, when we started working together, it was just us on the brokerage side. Now there's a team of six 
and growing that fulfill that same business and the pivot between being call it a player, which is like a producer in the industry and doing well for you or you and a partner to now running a team of six, you become a player coach and a lot less of the the day to day is deals for us. It's a lot more of strategy, team building, and you know, you're basically at that point running your own business within a business. So you mentioned it's it can't be the money that motivates you. What is it that motivates you to do the daily grind now? I don't know. I just, I like it. It energizes me. And I'm, uh, I guess personality wise too, I'd highlight to everyone like, so I'm mildly extroverted. Like there's a ton of introverts that kill it in this industry. Like my business partner is very introverted and he's an incredible sales guy. And to do well in this, it doesn't mean you're like the life of every party. There's a lot of ways to go about this. You just have to find what works for you. I think some of it's like, the thrill of the deal. I mean, our our favorite thing to do is win new business and then fulfill it better than the last guy. And so I think it's the competitive drive of just, I guess, winning assignments. And we have this philosophical debate. I asked my partner, I'm like, are you more of a love to win or hate to lose guy? And ironically, we're, we both hate to lose. So the wins, you know, can be small, but it's really just that we hate to lose. So the competitive nature, and then I don't know, it's fun and it's entrepreneurial. So like right now, our brokerage business is focused on location-based healthcare companies nationally. So we're doing a lot of like their portfolio management and expansion as an outsourced real estate department. But we could wake up tomorrow and be like, hey, we want to get an industrial or we want to get into multifamily. Like it'd be a really bad idea, but no one could stop us. So there's a intellectual itch you can continue to scratch by kind of building your own business in an entrepreneurial way. I thought it was interesting, the introvert extrovert point that you made. At TIP, the Investors Podcast, our company, we actually have to take the Myers-Briggs test before getting hired on. And I think it's a great thing for somebody, everybody to know their type. But to your point, introverts are often make some really great salespeople. They know how to listen. They're present for people. It's a good point you make. And I'd encourage if people don't know their Myers-Briggs type to check it out. Our whole team does it. Oh, really? So what are you? What's your type? I am an ENTJ. ENTJ. Very cool. I want to jump back. We're back to Chicago. It sounded like you had a girlfriend at the time who's now your wife, and she took a job in Columbus, which brought you to Columbus. You started with a company called Ohio Equities, and then you took a position where you're currently at at Equity. Tell us about Equity and how your previous roles, both at Marcus and Millichamp and Ohio Equities, prepared you for your current role that you're doing today. Marcus and Millichamp, super foundational and call it traditional sales and learning to sell and had I guess, a reputation for it's tough place to work, but if you can do it, that it being, call it constant sales calls, then you can build a phenomenal career and tough place to work, meaning it's just the business is hard. They're not going to hold your hand or baby you. They're going to be like that fatherly figure that you may not love to hear in the moment, but it's, they're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I think that's invaluable. When I started at Marcus, I called a ton of owners who were like, I'd love to sell, but I need to lease up some space. That is a daily occurrence for me. And some of that was driven by, you know, the conditions of retailers going under in the recession. So I was focused on retail investment sales there. And when I relocated to Columbus, I was like, man, one, then game was always to like own or be a part of investing in real estate. And so leases drive the value of a building. And I'm like, okay. A lot of these guys have leasing needs, like we could refer them out. I might as well learn how to do this if the end game 
is to own real estate and it's driven by leases. So I started to interview with shops that weren't just investment sales and also had leasing arms and components and had an interviewed around Columbus at like a bunch of the regionals and then the people at National Flags and ended up at Ohio Equities, which is NAI's affiliate. They're maybe still the largest property management company in central Ohio, if not one of the couple with a big focus on office and industrial. And there was just like a great cultural fit. And I learned a lot at Marcus about, call it in that year there, about the right questions to ask and what I was seeking in terms of like mentorship for the next step in the industry. So the kind of Venn diagram overlap of ability to lease some investment sales, and I was able to bring them some investment like sales and more advanced underwriting capabilities from my time at Marcus, where I underwrote, you know, like a billion dollars worth of assets and with the ability paired with the right team, Ohio Equities was just like a great kind of cultural fit and opportunity. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, Plus, available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Rob's Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. From my research, it sounds like you're wearing two hats with equity right now. Can you talk about those two different roles that you're playing? Yeah. 
I did a little bit of everything when I was at Ohio Equities. It was a lot of leasing, like industrial and office tenant wrap, a little bit of landlord, a little bit of investment sales. And most of the people in this industry that produce at a high level succeed by specialization. And so it was clear that like needed to specialize in something eventually and equity had reached out and they're kind of calling cards and our two core competencies have been healthcare and retail. And I'm like, oh, this healthcare thing's pretty interesting. I don't think it's going anywhere. As the like baby boomers and, you know, the proverbial green wave keeps getting older, there's just, there's a lot more demand and you can't like fight demographics. So maybe I should look into this healthcare things. Started talking to them and they ended up recruiting me over and it was really me going to a team to just focus straight on healthcare. And that I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this healthcare thing a try. I believe in it. It's a different niche and like the, the practitioners in the space who are like masters, it's a little bit different than general office and there's more to it than just, hey, does this medical space work? So I was like, hey, you're really, really building expertise to be a true advisor here on the medical side. And so that is what originally drew me over to equity. I wanted to hear what an average day looks like for you. I saw a tweet that you did and you kind of posted out your what you do hour by hour. Can you go into average day for you lately? Yeah. There is no such thing as average for me, but it really breaks down around a few core competencies, um, biz development. So I still do a lot of biz dev for our brokerage team. Uh, so on the advisory side, that's location-based multi-site healthcare uses. And then I do a lot of the acquisition work for our investment platform. So that's originating acquisition opportunities. A lot of my day is focused around those two. I'm definitely like, uh, a front-end revenue type guy. So that's two of the best ways to spend my time. A little bit more lately. So I do help oversee like our portfolio management, which might be a little different than asset management, but some of the bigger strategic decisions around anchor tenant renewals, debt and equity capitalization on projects, sell, refi type analysis, you know, I help to oversee. And that it's a capital intensive business. So I'm not the primary lead on this, but working with equity partners. So our investors, you know, help originating some of those relationships. And we started to really grow into like a registered investment advisor and family office platforms, kind of quasi to actually institutional investors. And that's kind of where my business partner and I are maybe best suited to talk because as finance guys, we get to talk a lot, a lot about risk adjusted returns, not just returns. One of my grinding gears is what's the return? Explain that a little bit for people that don't understand the differentiation. A lot of people will commonly ask, what's the return? And there's nothing wrong with that. But the way we focus on it is, and it's a little bit arbitrary, but it's like, what's the return for the risk that we're taking? And I frequently tell people some of my favorite deals, we hit like a 13% annualized return because we underwrote it. All the risks that we thought could happen, like did, and we mitigated them or things went basically exactly according to plan. I get excited when in our investment memos, there's always a page of here's what we think risk factors are. Here's how we think we can overcome them. I'm excited when we nail those because you can control the process, not the outcome. And we've done deals where the IRRs are 30, 40, 50% and we're going two or three times our money in a couple of years. And those are phenomenal to dislike those. But it really what we don't like to do is lose money. Company has a 37 year history and a couple billion in transactions, and we've never lost investor capital. And the reason for that is focusing on the risk adjusted returns, not just how much we can make. It really, we're maniacal about it. And we start with the call it 
left tail, if you will, which means how do we lose, not how do we win? And then the winning tends to take care of itself over time. Yeah, I've had so many interviews that people say, first, look at the downside. What's, as you say, the left tail, like what's the downside? What's the worst case scenario that can happen here? And then if you can live with that, then the upside takes care of itself. I wanted to talk a little more about advice and ideas that you had for someone who outside of directly having a job in commercial real estate, what are some other ways that you'd advise people to learn about the industry? It could be books or maybe your favorite conferences, a podcast, anything like that that you would recommend. Twitter has been a wild resource and there's this seemingly endless corner of Twitter of commercial real estate and also residential real estate practitioners where you can learn a ton and get ingrained. And it's, uh, I'd say, generally positive community where people are willing to help and give back. And, you know, depending on what your interest is, I think there's some decent books out there. I ha- I don't have any that have like impacted me, but there's a ton of book lists like floating around Twitter and that answer is going to be different. If you want to learn industrial leasing versus residential property management, right? There's just different niches. But Twitter has been a great resource from a commercial real estate practitioner standpoint. Like if you want to be an investor, you mentioned them earlier, but Moses Kagan's reconvene conference is like, that's a must. If you want to like start to get into that world, I can't imagine a better, more concentrated group of people that are investors in a broad sense of the way. So there's other great industry events. Like if you want to be in multifamily or you want to be in retail, where it's just focused on the people that own and operate those assets. But Moses is kind of overarching hodgepodge is you're a professional real estate investor and of all walks of life and everybody does it a little bit differently. But I would say that would be, you know, an incredible place. Did you happen to go to that this year? I did not. I'm hyping it up, but I've not attended yet. And there was a a last minute scheduling conflict that I couldn't get out of. But you have no on a personal level, you know, a number of the speakers and attendees and feel comfortable kind of vouching for it based on everybody's experience. Yeah, I'm trying to get many of those speakers that spoke at Reconvene on as as guests, but a lot of people have mentioned Reconvene as their favorite conference by far. I mean, hands down, it's like their favorite thing. ICSCs of the world are the national multifamily stuff. They're great. They're just, if you're exploring, that gives you one sliver of the world. Whereas I think Moses is, gives a much broader one. And the talks are around real things like building a business and where you're at, like a day in the life. Whereas if you go to like ICSC for retail, phenomenal conference, but it's all deal making. Like there's not people up there talking about hey, here's like what I actually do. They're like trying to build and grow their business. Like they're working in the business, not working on the business and talking about it. Yeah, it seemed like a great format too. It's just, it's almost like a podcast. He's got one guest up there and it's either him or somebody super knowledgeable just interviewing somebody else who's also super knowledgeable, just sitting down and rapping about what they do. So it's really cool. Any other thoughts? You said not many books, any other things that you'd recommend? A couple websites like Globe Street's a good one, a national real estate investor that just transformed into like wealth management real estate is a pretty good one. And then I'd say another podcast that I like that is in the original days, mostly focused on real estate and still has some real estate as Chris Powers, the four podcast has a lot of good interviews with real estate people as well. I like the four quite a bit. I like Chris Powers a lot. He was a guest a couple months ago, but he bring and you are a guest. He brings on some really great people and good interviews on on his podcast. Also mentioned that you did a tweet recently, I think, about you kind of segmented it on different follows. 
And I, I thought that was really a useful list. For commercial real estate, who are some of the guys that you mentioned? Oh, man. I mean, there's a ton of them. So I guess it... Give me your top three. You're going to give me trouble here. I like Strip Mall Guy. Sorry, I got to be careful not to dox him. I like Chris Powers. And I think probably Richard Furtick, who's big time. I mean, it's short-term rentals, but at a scale of, I would call that, a, you know, he's a commercial real estate practitioner in my mind, like a high-end hospitality. And those three are just largely driven by investment themes I like, I guess. So so everyone else out there, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means that their investment strategies speak closer to my heart because it's closer to what we do. But I think those three are great. I hate to put you on the spot like that, but those are three great names. In your own portfolio, do you do anything like Richard is doing or any of the other guys? Do you, can you talk about your own personal portfolio? Starts with... I co-invest in every deal we invest in. So I'm in all our funds and then we syndicate deals on the side. And if I'm involved, then I'm investing. And so for us, that is medical office buildings and small retail strip centers with a service-oriented focus. So outside of that, really not trying to do things that as a GP, I'm not trying to do things that we don't know. So I would like invest with any of the guys I just mentioned. If I wanted to go into that space, like I would give them money rather than and pay them rather than try to figure it out ourselves. And so heavy real estate focus, I'm a, I don't know, a sucker for income. And that's another wild thing. Like when I first got in the business, we had a bunch of investors that are like, Hey, what's the yield? Like, where's my return? And like, it's a value add project. There's no cash flow. The return's still going to be huge. And we did that, right? We would go, there's a couple of projects. We went like two or two and a half times our money, but there were no distributions for the first few years as we were leasing up and repositioning projects. And now that I'm have a lot more skin in the game as I've been able to accumulate capital, I love the regular distribution check. So I'm like totally one of those guys I used to judge being like, hey, I really like this cash flow thing, even if the return's lower, right? Which doesn't make sense. It just, it feels good to get quarterly distributions. So I'm invested in, yeah, I guess a lot of our stuff and then an LP um, on a few other things from a real estate standpoint. You mentioned strip mall guy. Can you talk a little bit about the value add strip malls that you're doing? What, what does one of those look like? We do stuff, I mean, pretty similar to him. One of the things I love about retail is only so many like main and main traffic corners and retail to me is maybe one of the most quantifiable parts of the industry. You know that like if you're close to the main corner and you have a strip center with call it X number of square feet vacant, you can do a void analysis of, hey, who's in the market, who's not there and who should be there because retailers site selection kind of strategy is programmatic, right? Starbucks doesn't just randomly choose a site. Walgreens doesn't randomly choose a site. All the regional and national guys have pretty defined criteria of what they're looking for. So you can see who's not there and try to bring them there. Like if you own a strip center without a pizza shop or any sort of nail spa, there's a pretty good chance you can get a pizza shop or nail spa in your strip center. So I, I like the ability to kind of quantify that and in retail jargon, that's called like your merchandising mix or your tenant mix, right? So you lay out the whole market, what other tenants are there, who's not there or who's there in like kind of smaller amounts. So if there's only one pizza franchise and there's no dominoes and it's a big populated market, you can be pretty sure you can attract somebody like that. And that the relationships in retail scale nationally better than most other asset classes, right? 
we own stuff in Texas, we own stuff in Florida, we own stuff in Ohio, and it might be different real estate people at a company, but you can kind of have one conversation with a group about multiple things. So it's uh, it's a business that can be a little bit more quantified and scaled. And then sometimes the ownership there is just a little bit more fragmented. At that side, you're usually dealing with like mom and pop ownerships, other entrepreneurs, not groups who like run substantial asset management platforms and have a lot of resources. Something that could be great for them could still have upside for us. And there's a lot of like win-win situations. What's the average purchase price on one of the strip malls? We're pretty small. I would say between like three and $10 million. We kind of eight or nine years ago coined the term the Amazon test. And that toss is just things that could have disruption from e-commerce. So we we're like scared of what we would call like a junior box in retail. So that starts to get like eight to 10,000 to 20 or 30,000 square feet where you have to have one tenant in there. We don't like those. So it kind of limits the size of a strip mall just for what we want. Cause we want to be able to have like service oriented tenants, which means you can't do it online or restaurants nail salons and then healthcare is going in there more and more like dental, urgent care, PT, fitness. And the other thing we like about retail is the land scarce and the supply coming out of 08 has been limited at best. So there's just, there's not a lot of supply of it. They're not making any more land in great locations. Now, great locations can change, but kind of the corner of Main and Main, if it stays that the land and what's there is already there. You're not competing with as much new supply. And with where construction pricing is gone, there's a lot of stuff to be bought, call it below replacement cost, which is dangerous. That doesn't make it a great investment, but it definitely can help protect your downside. If you can offer a similar product, call it cheaper than somebody can go build it. Sam Zell, who was a developer, I'm sure you're familiar with Sam Zell, Chicago guy also. I think that was one of his tenants was like buy below replacement cost, whatever you do. And what are some of the value add that you're doing to the strip malls once you buy them and it's re- below replacement cost? You're getting into some fix up there. You know, so one, we believe strongly in tenant interviews. I mean, we're talking to our tenants or potential tenants, I guess, formally during the due diligence process. And a lot of that is us asking them, hey, what can be fixed here? Like, what would you love to see? Almost always there's a conversation about the parking lot. So like low hanging fruit, a lot of times we buy it and we restripe or reseal or redo the parking lot in some capacity. And just freshening that up goes a long way. Sometimes it's just power washing the center because it's neglected. Other times it's painting the whole center. You know, roof leaks are like a non-starter, right? So making sure the roof's in good shape. But a lot of times it's the simple things and then being a really hands-on asset manager and trying to buy things where we think rents have just been below market because owner was okay with the status quo and us kind of increasing those over time in conjunction with running what we would call like a class A center and not all our stuff would be classified as class A, but listening to the tenants, making sure that there's no deferred maintenance and that they can put a good foot forward business wise. And, you know, then hopefully you can push rent up a couple bucks a foot over time. You mentioned the purchase price was around three to 10 million. I read something like that's a good niche because it's too small for the bigger hedge funds. They're just not, it's not a market they're interested in. Like you said, there's a lot of fragmentation and maybe some asymmetric opportunities that you can pick up. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, on both that and the healthcare side too, you know, our, we've largely wanted to be in our minds, maybe some of the more sophisticated people from a capital standpoint. 
but not compete against the big boys. That's a little bit of that work smarter, not harder. And you have to do more deals to hit the same scale, but there's some inefficiencies and, you know, we have an ability now and I think a track record to come forward and say, hey, we're different than maybe some of the other people looking at this deal or competing on it. We're not like a small group. The company is 150 people nationwide through a handful of offices. If we say we're going to do this, we're going to be able to do it. We vetted it on the front end and just try to bring what we call like institutional execution to maybe a more entrepreneurial and fragmented market. I wanted to hear more too about the medical office buildings. You mentioned a little bit about it, but talk further why you're attracted to MOB and what are some of the complexities with it that make it different than some of the other asset classes? That's really our bread and butter. So call it 70 or 80% of our portfolio right now, which is call it roughly five, 600 million of assets under management, depending on where you value some of our midstream development is, is medical. And we really grew that, call it coming out of 08. We were call it close to a 50-50 shop, retail to healthcare going into 08. And then as retail just dried up and medical continued to grow and really explode out of the GFC, we've continued to grow that platform. And so now with the benefit of hindsight, we've got, call it, Two economic hiccups recently in call it the GFC and COVID where we have that odd medical and for kind of everyone's perspective, we ended 2020 with like 96% of our rent collected on the healthcare side and you're never at a hundred. You always have some default. So, I mean, it was basically a normal year and it wasn't normal going through it. It, you know, we had some hiccups and people were late but we didn't like forgive rent or defer rent. We like truly pretty much collected 96% of our rent by the end of the year, which is great. And we have a saying that it's easy for a dentist to out earn a problem than a retailer. Like every retailer wants to sell more. That doesn't mean it can happen, but you know, dentists work like three to four days a week. If they need to pay more money, there tends to be some more demand and they just work an extra day. So the margins in healthcare are better. The stickiness. So like the tenant investment in space, you know, everyone these days is spending like probably one to $200 a square foot on their interior at a minimum in a medical office space. Moving is a lot more cost prohibitive once you invest that type of capital in the space and you have patients come in too. So there's a little bit of a retail feel to just even your traditional medical thing in that patients and customers get in the flow of coming to see you wherever you are. They get used to that location, plus your investment in the space, people just renew at a higher rate and the default rate on tenants is lower. You don't hear about as many medical practices going out of business and it's counter cyclical to the recession. So most of what we buy has, call it primary care, allergists, orthopedics, in areas where there's private insurance too. One, the customers aren't necessarily paying and two, most of our tenants don't have optional like elective surgery so we don't have a lot of like plastic surgeon exposure but we do have a lot of your primary care doctor who you're going to go see or your dentist who you're going to go see so it's just their business is maybe a little bit more predictable just based on the human condition and doesn't you know you're not going to not go see your dentist in a recession most likely you know assuming you're still employed or have some insurance you're probably still going to go to your dentist or your primary care And so that makes kind of tenancy and thus rent more predictable. And we always tell tenants like, I don't want to partner in your business, but I do want to understand it. And we are your partner whereby if you don't succeed, we don't succeed. Like, I don't want you to go out of business or have to retenant. I want you to do as well as you can 
our life as a landlord is easier. Um, and that's, you know, a little bit more, less volatile, I would say, on the healthcare side relative to retail. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. In my research, you wrote a tweet. You were talking about what a limited partner should ask a general partner in considering a deal. And I wanted to ask you <laughs> those questions that you wrote about. So as a GP, what are some of your worst deals that you've had? What happened? How'd you respond? And how did you inform the investors as the thing blew up or the mistakes were made? We've been fortunate. We've had some misses. I wouldn't call them blow ups, but we won report quarterly and two of its leg. 
something very material, we might send out like a special memo. So we believe like transparency is key. We're not trying to sit on bad news and like, and we're also not trying to make things call it overly rosy, like stuff goes wrong. We try to talk about that on the front end. So even our kind of front end meetings with investors, we're like, look, we think we do this generally pretty well. We have a lot of experience throughout the years as a team, but stuff is still going to happen. And we're going to try to respond to the best that we can. But like we call that earning our fee, like we're going to make fees and hopefully profit is going to be the majority of that. But like we're going to charge money to work hard because as soon as we close on an asset and we have a great investment memo and package, that's like that's the moment it's wrong and stuff's going to happen. That's outside of our control. So we try to have a really great process, but then life comes at you and we have to respond. Our worst deal in recent history, and this is actually in our pitch decks, you know, going to transparency, we show, hey, here's what a great deal looks like. Also, here's our worst one and what we did. And we bought a building that was mostly vacant and we had a surgery center tenant in tow. And surgery center tenants are very expensive to build out. This acquired, call it seven or eight years ago. And they were still putting, call it like 300 plus dollars a square foot into the interior to convert the building to like a fully, you know, function modern ASC, which is surgery center for those of you out there. And our biggest mistake was we funded most of his TI with our dollars. So TI being tenant improvements. Yeah. So tenant improvement money is like common for a landlord to give to a tenant. And in this case that I threw out that like 300 number and I forget where the exact numbers were, but let's just say we covered most of that. So we gave this guy $300 a square foot to remodel a space to build out into a surgery center. And we did, you know, a big credit check, financial analysis on it. You know, guy had a handful of millions of dollars, liquid, private plane, race car that he took around with his plane. So like very successful doctor. And we start to go down the path and all of a sudden he gets hit with a tax issue lean from the IRS. And as a landlord, you can have a lot of, you're above a lot of creditors, but you will never be above the IRS. And he, he had done a bad call it. He thought it was a safe tax deal. He got really bad advice and he owed a lot of money, like a very substantial portion of millions in back taxes. And he was just, you know, he kind of walked away from this project as a result of that. And so we got left with a huge basis holding a bag on, you know, an asset that didn't have negative or positive cash flow. And we are conservative as a group. So like when we do development, it's pre-lease development, usually 50% plus, and it has a positive carry, which means that our income exceeds the debt. So like we still have to lease it up to complete the project, but we're, it's not a race against the clock to where we're writing checks every month to cover the mortgage. Well, here we did. Founder of the company stepped in, wrote a bunch of checks to carry the mortgage team got on it super hard. Fast forwards today, have a best in class pediatric surgery center operator back in the space. When we bought the building, it was like 13 or 14% lease. It was going to get to like 70 or 80 with the surgery center in there. We've since leased up the rest of the space. So we're at a true 100% return or a 100% lease um, with a lot of lease term and a good surgery center operator. We, uh, we haven't sold it yet, but we think we'll break 
call it a one, two or one, one, two to maybe one, three equity multiple, which means for every dollar you gave us, we'll give you a dollar 20 to a dollar 30 back. And that's over, call it eight years. So like we missed the pro forma bad. It's not a, like that's a low single digit return because it's from an IRR standpoint, because it's all going to be at the end. Like there's been very few distributions. If any, I think maybe we made our first one like last quarter seven or eight years into the asset working through all these issues. And we had to like rejigger the debt capital stack and, you know, make loans from call it the company or the principal's pockets to float the asset, but we'll come out ahead. Uh, and, and it's been terrible, huge, like loss of time and brain damage. But unfortunately, like that's what you have to do when things go wrong. And we're just happy that there's a mildly positive return, even though it's a categorical failure internally. And we definitely learned some lessons about that and that maybe some structures to approve upon in the future. But at the end of the day, you know, making a little bit of money is still better than losing money. What could you have done differently once you had gotten into it? Once we got into it, I think we did about all we could, but going into it, I think we would have structured the deal with the tenant a little bit differently. And we've started to throw around a saying of, I'm investing in the real estate. I don't want to be your partner in the business. And if you turn key attendance TI to me, you're really partnering in their business or a lot of it for real estate returns. And we don't like that, you know, from a risk adjusted standpoint. If, you know, my upside and I kill it on a building is a 20% IRR and you can compound and, you know, you have 40% margins because you run a surgery center, but I'm footing the bill for your biggest expense, which is building that out. You know, we just, we don't like that. So there's a couple of things structurally where you can still give that amount of TI potentially, but pay it out differently and make them forward fund it and then earn it out over time or collateralize it with like lines of credit from a bank or other assets they have to not get left holding the bag, or you just pare down your TI contribution. Some combination of basically not just saying, hey, we're doing this deal for you and we're going to give you all the money and it's not that secure or like it's easier for you to walk and it's got to be a court battle, right? And nobody ever wins in court. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And so trying to get as far out in front of that in a structure whereby like if you had a non-revocable letter of credit from a bank, which he probably could have gotten given his cash balance. Then all of a sudden that sweeps in and you've got your TI money out, which would have dramatically changed the course of this investment. Really just remembering we're real estate investors first. And as much as we want to get deals done, not giving an amount of TI to where we feel like we're invested in their business and they have limited skin in the game relative to us. And the key point is communicating with investors as things are going wrong. And you did that quarterly. Is that right? Yep. On all our assets, we give quarterly updates and that's, uh, you know, a narrative of performance and then like leasing momentum, capbacks, where we see issues. Fortunately, a lot's gone right. Also, what's going well, but not hiding the bad. And as soon as that tenant started to default, there was communication about it. As soon as we found out the default was driven by, you know, the IRS coming at them, then there was a lot of communication about it and like very, I guess, regular updates around that. And our updates aren't just we try to be solution oriented. So it's not just that, hey, something went wrong. It's, you know, the MO is, hey, this is going wrong. Here's what our plan is to do about it. Or here's our action steps to try to fix the situation. I wanted to switch gears a little bit. And the next question I wanted to ask you was, how are you investing and underwriting deals with how low cap rates are at the moment? Our investment philosophy is usually like secondary and tertiary growth markets. We're not competing for stuff and like, the Boston, New York City, LA, San Fran, Miami's of the world. 
everything we've bought, even recently, we've had positive debt carry. So what that means is that adding leverage doesn't dilute your cash on cash return. You know, it enhances that. So we've still been able to buy stuff with at least like 150 basis point spread of going in cap rate to debt. So that means if we bought a deal at a seven cap, our debt's going to be five, five. I don't think we can necessarily do that today, but we have a couple. We're going to be closing on a 20 some million dollar portfolio and our debt quotes are in the like, call it five, seven to six range. And so that's workable to have positive leverage. And if we can't get it and there's not a huge value add component, we just, we won't do the deal. Happy to say in 2022, I think we were by far a net seller. We definitely sold more assets than we acquired on a dollar basis. I'm not quite sure where that shakes out, but we sold a lot because we thought these, we would never buy them at these prices. And, uh, you know, it's time to let them go because the business plan is, has been implemented. And then no matter the economic environment, we've pretty much always underwritten cap rate expansion. And so what that means is if our going in cap rate is seven, we're going to pro forma exiting at a cap rate above that. And depending on the asset location and business plan, that amount will vary. Sometimes it's, you know, 50 basis points over a few years. So a seven and a half cap exit or other times it's like an eight if it's more tertiary that's kept us out of some trouble because between performing that and some debt pay down, a lot has to go wrong in the world to miss or get in trouble. And we tell everyone, we think we're pretty good in the capital markets. We think we understand, but we have no control. Nobody on this podcast, unless you get some Fed speakers or whatnot, is going to have control over interest rates increasing at an unprecedented and historic rate in 2022. So we just try to capitalize things conservatively. We don't float a lot of debt. And if we float the debt, we have a rate cap and we try not to have maturity issues so that we can work through things and just not be a forced seller. A lot of it for us just comes down to being able to sell when we want to and not when a bank or a partner says, hey, you need to fire sale this. As a GP, how are your incentives aligned with your investors? We're co-investing and all our deals. If there's any guarantees like for debt, the it's only the the GP or us taking on a personal guarantee. So on bigger deals, we can get away with no personal guarantees. And on others, like smaller deals, whereas bank debt, a lot of times there's a personal guarantee given by you know, some of the partners here. If there is non-recourse debt available, it's usually 20 basis points or more, more expensive. So that like interest savings goes kind of back to the investors first. And, you know, there's a big debt guarantee. So, you know, if there's sleepless nights and there's non-conservative structures, we're definitely eating our own cooking with the, the guarantee side of things. And then structurally, our deals all have some sort of pref, usually six to 8% preferred return that's cumulative, but non-compounding and then return of capital to investors. If, you know, the investors aren't getting, call it roughly a six to 8% return annually, and that's not on a time-weighted basis, then we don't hit any sort of promote or profit participation. So the investors are going to, you know, get that floor in their capital back before we start to share in profits, which we think is the most kind of investor-friendly way to split cash flows and sale or gains on sales from asset. I think it's pretty similar how Warren Buffett structured his original partnership. I wanted to talk capital. I had Eric Weatherholtz on recently and he tweeted that money loves winners and that capital being the lifeblood of real estate seeks out those who know how to multiply it. So for someone wanting to be a GP or just getting started, what are your thoughts on how to raise capital and then also find LPs that are aligned with you? 
one, Eric's great, you know, resident developer and taco aficionado and patio aficionado. I would say in, as an investor, it's maybe, you know, not too dissimilar from some of the same brokerage advice and that like you need to build a track record or be at a firm who has one and, and or a partner who has one. And I would say like, we've seen some guys come in and they're like, Hey, I've got this great deal. Like I need money. And then you start to talk through it. And there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into the back office of being a good GP. So like behind just sourcing deals and cents and dollars, the the platform, the asset management report and file taxes and like our funds are audited. So that's a whole different level of compliance. But there's a lot of back office stuff that goes into that. And you'll start to talk about, hey, if we're going to partner on this, this is what it looks like from our end. And they inevitably end up wanting more of the deal. And it's like, well, if you don't have the capital to do it, I think we're going to bring a lot of value. But I would say having an abundance mindset to get some of those reps in and build the track record, like you don't need to win or, you know, try to ride off into the sunset on your first deal or first few deals, like having that long-term mentality of like, hey, I'm going to be doing this for the next decades. And that capital is the lifeblood of the business. The, you know, at the end of the day, like average check sizes in the low six figures, you know, that's an immense amount of trust from a lot of people to give you 200, 500 million dollars at a time and mostly individuals like being cognizant of what your real ask is and the trust of this is people's hard earned money. Like you're a steward of their capital. You need to take that very seriously. And that that trust isn't built overnight. And so if you're going to have a partner who has built that trust that like it takes maybe one bad deal or a couple bad deals to ruin a life's worth of work. And when viewed through that lens, treat capital very well and maybe partner with people who have treated capital well and then listen to them when they say, hey, this is like what's fair that your empire of investors wasn't built in a day. So I just think that takes time and relationships compound and everybody loves good investment, the best thing you can do is knock it out of the park for someone on their first deal. And then they're going to be your biggest advocate. They're going to tell all their friends and it just, it compounds over time. But it's one of those that may happen slowly and then all at once, but it starts by being a really good investor in GP, being transparent and doing good deals and not trying to win off any one deal, but knowing that over the course of time, if you consistently do the right thing, you can have a very good livelihood. As we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you, what asset class are you not involved in, but you keep thinking about? It's got to be like contractor garages and flex. So I know I give a shout out to Chris earlier. It's maybe not too dissimilar from some of the things in retail. The cost to reproduce that and build it is such that there's just very limited supply constraint or supply coming online. And if you overlay that with trying to get that zoned in a city, plus costs. It's just, it's a huge uphill battle and it is kind of uh, maybe not quite the backbone of the economy, but there's a lot of small business that has to operate out of that. And they're not making a lot more of that. And we have needs for like those trades and like hard businesses that work out of there. So I just think it's got very favorable kind of tailwinds and that the cost basis for what a lot of them are from like a rent standpoint to with where the world is today inflation wise that the rents maybe have not caught up with like today's reality of construction price and inability to like create new supply for that. That's one of the dangers of my job. I get exposed to so many different ideas that it can be dangerous. I think we've done well as a group trying to stay focused and we're all maybe shiny penny guys at heart, but some of our success hasn't necessarily been what we've done, but what we haven't done 
and trying to not chase the shiny pennies and doing your job would be intellectually stimulating and probably very challenging because I'd have a lot of late nights going down rabbit holes. I interviewed a guy recently, James Nelson. He's coming out with a book called The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing. But that was his key point. His key piece of advice was find a niche, stick to it and get really, really good at it. So it sounds like you guys have done that. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for your time today. For our listeners that want to reach out to you or maybe learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so two ways. I'd say Twitter is a good one and it helps you kind of see how I think. And that's Matt Lasky, M-A-T-T-L-A-S-K-Y or email is mlasky at at equity, E-Q-U-I-T-Y dot net. All right. Thanks, Matt. This has been great. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.